Welcome to the story of XH558, Into the Sky. Hello and welcome to the next episode of uh, the podcast Vulcan to the Sky. We're very privileged uh, to be able to speak to a gentleman who has had a very distinguished flying career. Uh, please welcome Bill Ramsey. Hello, Bill, and thank you for joining us. Hello there, Martin. It's great, uh, great pleasure. Hello to everybody. I'll tell you what, your bio does make very, very interesting reading. It appears that you've really wanted to be nothing but a pilot from an early age. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much entirely true, apart from up to about the age of four or five, when, like uh, many young men in the late 1950s, I, I would have rather have driven a steam engine. But uh, eventually I realised that the, the golden age of steam had disappeared, or uh, was disappearing quickly, so uh, becoming a pilot, a military pilot, seemed like the right thing to do. Because reading your bio, your mum was a librarian, is that right? Uh, she, yes, she was, and I, I was a very keen reader from a, uh, a young age, and she used to bring home all sorts of books, but eventually she started bringing home uh, Reach for the Sky, uh, The Dam Busters, and the, all the stories of the Great Second World War aces, which kind of got my interest, and then so I carried on reading uh, back First World War, uh, McCudden, Ball, Manock, all of those truly great heroes, uh, at which point uh, it was, for me, I was going to become a military pilot, and actually what I really wanted to become was a military fighter pilot, uh, but just that all took a bit longer. If you're thinking about becoming a, a military pilot, I think that's what most people want to be, is a fighter pilot anyway, isn't it? Well, certainly in my day. I mean, it was only a few years ago I retired from from training some of this uh, current generation uh, of pilots in various simulations. This generation of people are, are, are different. Some of them are attracted naturally to multi-engine transport-type aeroplanes, but a lot of them, of course, are very keen to fly helicopters, which are much, much more sophisticated now than they were back in the 1970s. So, obviously, your next step was that you, you wanting to be a pilot. So the next step is, of course, you join the uh, the Air Cadets. Then you join the uh, the RAF uh, and uh, did your training. What, what was the first aircraft you actually flew? The uh, very first one as a cadet was uh, the Venerable Chipmunk on an Air Experience flight. During my time with the cadets, I... I was able to join my local uh, volunteer, volunteer gliding school, uh, number 617, a place called West Morling in Kent, a very famous uh, fighter airfield from the Second World War. Uh, and I went there for three or four years, so went solo, became a, an instructor actually in the event. And that's, again, very old, very old gliders, the Kirby Cadet Mark III and the Slingsby Sedberg, which many of your older listeners uh, may remember with some fondness as Open air gliders at this time of year were very, very chilly, uh, and definitely were sort of a, a Second World War vintage design, the canvas and wood. I would imagine that would have been chilly any time of the year, not just this time of the year. Yeah, well, one thing I've learned down the years, and it doesn't really matter where the airfield is, there is no nowhere colder than an airfield. So after gaining your pilot's license, and, and obviously you've, you've done your training through the RAF as well. Did you know that you were going to be flying the Vulcan or had you got to, or was the other plans? Uh, as, as I said, what I really wanted to do was go and fly the F-4 Phantom. But uh, I actually probably didn't quite work hard enough uh, during basic flying training on the Jet Provost. 
Uh, we were at an airfield called Linton News, which is right next to York, which had a very thriving nightlife. So I, I tended to get a bit distracted by that. Uh, so about halfway through that course, you, you were what they call streamed to either fast jet or multi-engine. Uh, and I hadn't done quite well enough to go to RF Valley to uh, fly the, the NAT at the time. Uh, so I was posted to the multi-engine stream uh, at a place called RF Oakington, uh, which, again, was a place I didn't really want to be because that led to multi-engine flying on airplanes um, like the like the C-130 Hercules or the Nimrod, which I didn't want to do for the rest of my life. So I had a look at the Vulcan, which is obviously camouflaged and dropped bombs and was reasonably reasonably quick for a multi-engine airplane. So I thought the only way to get to fast jets is to volunteer to go to the Vulcan. Uh, at that time, uh, not many people going through that bit of training had any interest in going to fly the Vulcan. They actually wanted to go and fly the new shiny C-130 and so on. So uh, even though I didn't do especially well on that course, um, the, the RF granted my wish and I found myself at Scampton in uh, early 1975, uh, ready to start the Vulcan Operational Conversion Unit. So it was more, okay, it wasn't quite the, the path that you'd wanted to take, but it was eventually as, as a means to an end. What were your thoughts when you first got aboard a Vulcan, shall we say? Uh, well, when I first arrived, I had about two months to, uh, to wait before I started my conversion course. And at that time, I was flying a very elderly airplane, uh, also at Scampton, called the Handley Page Hastings, which will really test people's memories, but that's a four-engine tailwheel aircraft, Second World War vintage, which was used for training navigators for the Vulcan and other airplanes for in low-level radar techniques. Uh, but during that time, uh, I was invited to go and have a trip in the sixth seat of the Vulcan, which I'm sure your listeners know what that is, the very nasty little wooden seat in the back just uh, behind where the AEO, the navigator, and the two navigators used to sit. Uh, and I went for a flight with the officer commanding uh, 27 squadron. So it was a bit of a dark hole and I couldn't see very much. But as this massive aeroplane, what I could see was an airspeed indicator, which of which there was one uh, in the rear cockpit. Uh, so I could see how quickly this aeroplane was accelerating. And I could see on the altimeter how very quickly it was going up, uh, far faster than anything that I'd previously flown before. So at that point, I was starting to be pretty, pretty impressed by the Vulcan. Subsequently, in sort of uh, March, April of that year, I started. We started the course, and yeah, the aeroplane was is a remarkable aeroplane. What it was then, I mean, my my flying instructor when I was flying around the circuit told me off for my over exuberance. He was a chap from Yorkshire. He said to me, "Steady on, lad. It's not a bloody hunter," uh, which kind of gives you some idea about the performance and the rates of roll that the the Vulcan had for yeah for a big aeroplane. I think that's one thing that does surprise a lot of people, the power and the elegance of the aircraft itself, given the size of it, isn't it? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it is, you know, for, for big Olympus engines, in, in our case, the 558 limited to about £16,000 of thrust per engine, but nonetheless, a massive amount of power. And, of course, the, the really clever thing about the design uh, with, with the delta-winged aeroplane is, is the four, is the eight enormous elevons across the, the rear of the wing it had been a it'd been a delta wing you, you can't have separate ailerons and elevators this is probably teaching people to suck eggs who listen to this but of course it, it was cleverly put into the design eight of those which combined both the elevator and the aileron functions into one control surface which gave the airplane 
an impressive amount of agility, uh, again, for its size. Age of 20, you were actually flying Vulcans, is that correct? Uh, yeah, just, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I became 21 fairly quickly after that, but yeah, uh, my captain, a chap called Glenn Lewis, who sadly died a, a month or two ago, was only 24 himself. He was, at that point, still a flying officer. Very unusual to have two such young and junior uh, pilots uh, at the controls of a, what was a nuclear bomber. So you, so you came back to, because you went out to Cyprus and then you came back to Scampton. Is that, is that correct? Uh, no, I, I, when I, just as I was approaching the OCU, my, what they call a posting note, so it tells you where you go, was my posting was to number 35 squadron, which at that time was just leaving Cyprus in a bit of a hurry because the Turks had just invaded the island. And so it was decided that the best thing we could do would be to take our large uh, bombers and, and uh, remove them from Akrotiri and bring them back to Scampton, uh, to number four hangar at Scampton, which is a hangar which I've used on and off throughout the rest of my life. So instead of going to Cyprus as a happy 20-year-old, I went to North Lincolnshire. You can probably guess what my preference might have been. There's not a lot of difference when the sun's out. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you actually at Scampton then? Uh, I'd spent th- just just over three years. I left Scampton in mid-1978 to go to Central Flying School to become a Jet Provost instructor. Yeah, I was just looking at that. Yeah, because then you went because then you went on to fly the GR ones, the tornadoes, didn't you? It wasn't quite that quick. I had to spend four years as a, as a flying instructor on the Jet Provost before they uh, before I was uh, given the chance to go to what they call doing a fast jet crossover right. uh, to uh, to fast jets. I, I was at that point before I'd even started the training posted to fly the Harrier actually. Uh, which I did. I flew the Harrier for the co- uh, the operational conversion unit. Then for reasons various, I decided that actually if I carried on doing that, it would probably kill me. I mean, fantastic, exciting airplane to fly, but very difficult and, and you know, right at the edge of what I was capable of at that point. Uh, so, And as I, my wife had just given birth to our first son, I thought actually I probably ought to stay alive for them. So I, I asked the RF and they kindly agreed and they let me change a slight change of direction and I went to fly the Tornado G1. And how long were you flying the Tornadoes? Uh, I flew the Tornado for getting on for nine years. First, uh, first three years was in the front line in a place called RF Larbrook in Germany, uh, which was, bearing in mind the Cold War was still going pretty strong at that point, uh, was as front line as it, as it could be. In 1987, came back to the UK uh, and I went to a place called Collismore, which was the tri-national tornado training establishment, uh, where the crews for the, for RAF, Italian and German squadrons all did the initial part of their training together. Uh, and I spent uh, pushing four years doing that. Again, reading through your bio here, a little bit earlier on, you were saying that you'd done a spell in Saudi, which involved a trip to Cyprus, uh, the Royal Saudi display train to see the Red Arrows. That's when that that point was it. You got involved with the Red Arrows and spent four years with them. Uh, yes, I, I did. In, in between that, I uh, was when I actually did go and fly uh, for a short while with with the BBMF on the, with the Lancaster and Dakota. Um, I went there again. A name familiar to your listeners is David Thomas, uh, who was the one of the last two display captains of Five Five Eight in the RF, and of course one of the first crew when Five Five Eight flew after restoration. And uh, uh, D- Dave rang me up kind of out the blue in 1999 and asked me if I'd like to go and uh, go and fly the Lancaster with the BBMF. 
Well, uh, you know, that's a pretty tricky question. Uh, so about two seconds later, I said yes. And so I, I spent the first part of 2000 flying, uh, flying the Lank and the Dakota with Dave. But sadly, at that point, the RAF uh, promoted me, at which point I had stopped doing that. And off I went to Saudi Arabia for three years, uh, an event for only two years. Then I came back to the Red Arrows job as a wing commander of Royal Air Force Aerobatic Team and uh, detachment commander RF Scampton. So, and uh, yes, you're right. I did that for four years. So you're backwards and forwards, really, between various places in Scampton. So we're back at Scampton again now whilst you're with the, the Red Arrows. What, what points are we here time-wise? Because I'm looking at, again, reading through your bio, he's saying that 2001 is when you had the meeting with uh, with Dr. Robert Fleming. Uh, yes, I, I, I took over as Wing Commander Reds at the start of 2001, and I uh, retired from doing that at the start of 2005, so four, four seasons with the team. And uh, yeah, Robert, Robert came uh, came to talk to us about the possibility of basing 558 at Scampton uh, at some point during 2001, middle of the year, I think. Go on, what were your thoughts when, you, when somebody came to you and said, we're going to get a Vulcan back in the air? Well, I already knew that it was going on because to just roll back to when I was flying the Lancaster with Dave, Dave, Dave was obviously part of uh, of, of getting five five eight back uh, back into the air, and he was going to lead the air crew. And he, he also used to say to me that yeah, one day we'll uh, we'll get together a small group of pilots, Bill, and we'll go and fly five five eight. I, I kind of didn't think that he was he meant that, but anyway, I mean that. As it happens, that's that's more or less what he did. And at that point, five five eight was still being stripped back to the uh, just the, the, the bare metal uh, to be to have the, the full NDT inspection to make sure the uh, fuselage, uh, the airframe, was fit to get back into the air. So after Rob, after Robert came to Scampton, he invited me to go down uh, to uh, Bruntingthorpe to uh, it was kind of cheese and wine and media day for people to look at five five eight. So. That was the first time I saw 558 um, post-restoration uh, or in the middle of restoration, just just a sheet of gleaming aluminium or whatever it's made out of. And did you honestly feel at that point that it might be a strong possibility that it would return to the sky or was it just still a bit of a pipe dream? Uh, I, Robert's enthusiasm was infectious. There was no doubt in Robert's mind it was going to happen. Uh, and of course, by that time, they had raised a big chunk of the money that they needed to to actually fund doing that. So yeah, I I kind of thought they'd do it. I, like like a lot of these projects, it um, took longer, I think, than Robert would have anticipated. But in the event, yeah, there was it two thousand and seven, two thousand eight, back in the air. Yeah, which was a, a great moment. Were you there? No, is the answer. By that time, I'd uh, left the air force and had a, a job as a full time reservist teaching flying instructors on the Grob Tutor. But the following year, 2009, I was the RF display pilot for the tutor. And so at that point, I think I think the first time I saw 558 back in the air uh, was when it arrived for the Cosford Air Show which in 2009, which was amazing. So by this time, as you said there, you, you're displaying the grob, which you were a full-time reservist at this point. It was one of those slight surprises. I said so I left the Air Force proper in 2008. Towards the end of uh, that year, what happens in the Air Force is that every morning there's a, there's a weather briefing before everybody goes flying, so everybody has to attend that. And then at the end of it, the squadron commander does parish notices. And towards the end of 2008, 
he came up with the question, would anybody like to be the display pilot for the tutor for next year? Um, by that stage, I was 56 years old, uh, full-time reservist. And I was pretty sure that they'd say, no, you can't possibly be in the competition uh, because it was a competition, uh, as it turned out. To my surprise, they said, yeah, you can have a go at the competition, at, at, which was the point I realised that I'd actually have to win the competition uh, against the uh, young whippersnappers. Uh, otherwise, they'd say, you know, silly old person uh, or words like that. So uh, as luck would have it, I, I did that. And then I displayed the, the tutor for the next two years. That was leading up to the call to go and fly the Vulcan again, was it? Because that was, it was 2011 that you actually sat back in the cockpit of 558. Is that correct? That's right. I, I finished my two years displaying the tutor at the end of 2010. Very early 2011, went to a lunch to say goodbye to an old friend. Uh, the lunch was also attended by, again, people remember Mike Pollitt. He was the ops director for uh, Vulcan to the Sky at that point, but he was also an old friend of mine. Uh, and uh, we were just, we'd had a few beers and he was just talking over lunch and he said, are you going to display the tutor again this season? I said, no, I think I've kind of run out of things to do with that. And he said, well, why don't you come and fly the Vulcan with us? And so I, I thought it was the beer talking at the time. Um, but, is that, but I think it was two or three days later, I had a phone call from Martin saying, no, we kind of meant it. Do you want to come and have a have a chat with me about it? So I met Martin uh, in the officer's mess at Scampton, I think it was late January. And we agreed I'd go for it. I, it was, I mean, I, I had to renew my private pilot's license uh, to, to be able to fly the Vulcan because, again, as people probably know, the, the really strange thing about flying this enormous four-jet is that the, the license that we needed was only a single-engine piston private pilot's license, uh, which kind of seems seems a bit strange, really. Uh, but as I was flying a single-engine piston trainer at the time, it was it was pretty easy for me to uh, renew my private my PPL. All that I had to really do was uh, reset two or three of the, the ground exams about air law and stuff like that, uh, which had obviously moved on since I'd got my private pilot's license back in 1970, whatever it was. So that was on. Then I, I joined the rest of the crew uh, for the annual um, technical ground school, which we did every single year in sort of March time or thereabouts, where we went through all of the aircraft systems uh, just to make sure that everybody remembered exactly how the airplane worked and all the things they actually needed to know, uh, which gave, I, I knew two or three of the guys on the crew already, but it gave them a chance to look at me and me a chance to look at them. So we could all decide that we thought it would it would work or it wouldn't work. Uh, and in the event, we all agreed that they'd let me come and fly the Vulcan with them. And that's how I found myself at Bruntingthorpe Cold War Jets Day, which was towards the end of June, I think that year. You've flown many a great aircraft, Tornado, Dakotas, Lancasters, but that's just to name a few, and you've mentioned some of the others as well. How do they compare to 558? I mean, it wouldn't be a fair comparison because none of them are in the same category as the Vulcan. I mean, the Vulcan, you know, a fully fueled operational Vulcan is a 90-ton bomber. Uh, I think the Tornado was, uh, I can't remember exactly, I think it was probably about 30 tonnes. Yeah, fully fueled tornado was a supersonic low-level airplane from a generator, you know, designed in the 1970s. Whereas the Vulcan, you know, traces its roots back to 1950, pretty much. The, the old airplanes like the Lancaster are just fantastic because they are the Lancaster and the history that goes with them. So it, it you know, it, it's it's kind of horses for courses. You, it, it would be unfair to, to compare any one of them with any other one of them. So, of course, you've, you've flown a 66 uh, times in total over the, the period she was back in the air. 
why why do you think it is that people just warmed to five five eight as much as they did? It is a good, it's a great question because yeah, back in the seventies when I flew the airplane and operationally, yeah, amongst their crew, it really wasn't the most popular airplane, as I've kind of kind of touched on. When you got to the late eighties and the airplane operationally stopped flying, and Dave Thomas and Paul Milliken. Uh, were uh, operating 558 with the v, with the Vulcan display flight, the VDF. Uh, it was uh, it, it was as if it was sort of a rebirth. I mean, I, I, I did see 558 fly when it was still in the RAF, and that was when I was a squadron commander at RAF Cottesmore uh, on the, the tornado, which I mentioned before. Uh, and we had an open day at Cottesmore, and 558 came and did a display. And I was quite astonished because, of course, all our students were, you know, young, you know, 20, 21 year old people. And they all rushed out and they were absolutely gobsmacked. And their, their enthusiasm for 558 was, was quite astonishing. And, 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 you know, that carried on you know, when we were displaying 558 post restoration. You know, the, the stats speak for themselves. You know, they reckoned, you know, the Vulcan effect, the, yeah, twenty percent extra or whatever it was on airshow crowds. Whenever five five eight was displaying, uh, I mean, as, as an airshow airplane, it's it, it fulfills you know some great things. It's massive. It sort of fills the sky. Uh, it is extremely noisy. It's extremely smoky. It makes a howl that nobody can properly explain. But it, it's a good noise. It makes your chest vibrate when it takes off next to you. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess you could sum it up and say it had a certain presence. Yeah, I think that's pretty much safe to say. And having been on the ground when at a display, I can honestly say that, you know, well, RAF Church Fenton 558 came in as one of the la- the last attractions. As soon as uh, she'd finished the display and they were flying off, mass exodus of the airfield. So, yeah, I, I get what you're trying to describe there. Do you miss her? Do you miss 558? Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, miss do, doing what we did because it obviously brought so much pleasure to so many people. Uh, and you know, as I'm, I, as uh, Robert has talked about in public before, we we could probably have carried on for you know another eighteen months or so uh, in terms of engine life. Uh, well, engine life really was the government would have been the governing factor if the people, if the companies concerned, had agreed to carry on carrying that risk. My own feeling, when after you know, a short reflection, was that it was probably a good time to stop. Um, we'd, we'd had a few minor minor problems. Most people remember the gear, the nose gear not travelling properly at Prestwick. That had happened on two previous occasions, uh, which luckily not in front of any crowds. But uh, you know, on any of those occasions, if that nose gear hadn't come down properly, it would have had quite a serious outcome. It pro- probably involving uh, the AEO having to jump out of the bottom of the aeroplane uh, before we attempted to land it. So, and there were one or two other you know, people m- might remember the fuel problem we'd had before the club day at Coventry in September. That was very, very unusual. I- I'd not seen a- exactly that problem in Vulcan ever before. And we never really were able to explain what had happened, I think, on that day. So on reflection, I thought, actually, you know, maybe safety first. Y- yes, I missed it, but I think it was probably a good time for 558 to stop flying. And just finally... You're, a per- you're the only person in the world to have flown Red Arrows, uh, the Hawk, the BBMF, Lancaster, the Dakota, uh, various other aircraft, and, of course, XH-558. 
That's an amazing claim to fame, that Bill. What's next for Bill? Well, that, that that's pure luck. And as you know, because the trust are trying to help out, we're uh, trying to uh, help out Scampton Church to put a new church window in, which reflects uh, all four of those types and aeroplanes. So you can imagine I'm uh, keen for them to uh, succeed with that. So if people want to help them, uh, just have a look at Scampton Church uh, window uh, and you'll find it in Google somewhere. Uh, what I'm actually doing is trying to help the, the People's Mosquito, which is a charity laid out, you know, along similar lines uh, to the Vulcan in the Sky, because uh, a lot because Rob has very kindly given a lot of help and advice. Uh, and we're trying to restore, in, in effect, build a Mosquito FB6 to get back to the UK skies, uh, which, again, is a different class of aeroplane to the Vulcan. But the technical challenge and the financial challenge to that are of the same scale. Um, we, we have to this point uh, completed the moulds that you need to build the wooden, the two halves of the wooden fuselage because the Mosquito is a wooden aeroplane. Uh, but again, it, it's claim to fame. I mean, it, it was the fastest aeroplane on either side uh, for about a period of 18 months during the Second World War. It held the blue ribbon for crossing the Atlantic uh, for a period of about 12 weeks at the fastest crossing of the Atlantic for uh, a period during the Second World War. It, it is a Merlin engine aeroplane like the Lancaster, the Spitfire and the Hurricane. But there are no, there isn't one flying in this country. It hasn't been since 1996. So fair winds, following weather and lots of good support from everybody out there. Uh, if, if you can find it in your heart to bung a few quid to the People's Mosquito, again, please have a look. Like Vulcan the Sky Trust, we have an online shop, all sorts of ways you can get involved. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. And I'd be grateful if anybody else would like to help us. Well, Bill, just want to say thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you. And uh, thanks for the insight into uh, 558. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Martin. If you'd like to support Operation Safeguard, the Vulcan to the Sky Trust appeal to raise money to build a hangar at Doncaster Sheffield Airport, please visit vulcantothesky.org.